A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. When Diplomacy Fails presents. Hello and welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Hey guys, welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Hello and welcome to Hello When Diplomacy Fails. Hello and welcome fails. to When Diplomacy Fails. A project five years in the making. The Franco-Prussian War. The Seven Years War. Of the When Diplomacy Fails special on Napoleon. The Crimean War. To When Diplomacy Fails special on World War I. The Dutch Revolt. To the When Diplomacy Fails special on the Thirty Years War. The July Crisis Anniversary Project. The Swedish Deluges. Britain goes to war. The 1916 to the Franco-Dutch War of 1672. This is When Diplomacy Fails, Remastered. This is the second part of When Diplomacy Fails Remastered Look at the Mexican-American War, which originally aired as one episode on the 15th of August, 2012. Hello and welcome back to the Mexican-American War. Last time we set the scene and explained why Texas was such a touchy subject to both the Americans and Mexicans. Domestic troubles, characterized by a series of unstable regimes, led Mexico to authorize a surprise invasion of American Texas in late April 1846, which in turn provoked a declaration of war from Congress mere weeks after. It is from here that our story resumes. I will now take you to early summer 1846. Manifest destiny was on the march, and it was unfortunate that Mexico stood in the path. Winston Churchill The rarely told story of this war is that it very nearly never happened. Earlier in 1846, the United States had made overtures to Mexico to purchase practically all the land which it would eventually annex following the war. John Slidell, the secret negotiator in Mexico, offered to take Alto California, New Mexico, and settle the final border with Texas for a cool $25 million, which is worth an even cooler $690 million in today's money. 
It wasn't so much that Mexico refused, but that in 1846 it was practically incapable of negotiating. Remember how chaotic the Mexican government was by 1846, but this would be the last genuine diplomatic move that the United States made. When the Mexican people found out about the not-so-secret offers made by Slidell, they were outraged, and this feeling contributed to yet another governmental change, that of General Paredes, heading a nationalist government which immediately laid claim to Texas as indisputably Mexican-owned land. It was this government which Slidell thought should be chastised, as he put it, for backing both sides into a corner and defying both reason and common sense when it came to the Texan question. Slidell got his wish, and the government was chastised. In fact, it collapsed just like the others, which leads us into an interesting side note that I just have to share with you right now. Remember Santa Ana, the former Mexican president who had been captured in battle and forced to sign Texan independence away? Well, during this time he was writing to Mexico City, appealing to the government of Paredes to let him come back into the country and help fight the expected invasion of the US Army. While he was in correspondence with Paredes, though, he was also negotiating secretly with the US government, and he promised that if he was allowed back into Mexico, he would use his popularity to force the Mexican authorities into accepting the selling of the land that the US had offered to previously buy. Santa Ana wasn't just playing both sides, though. He was also planning on betraying both sides. When Paredes brought him in to support his ailing dictatorship, Santa Ana almost immediately seized the opportunity and deposed Paredes, acquiring for himself the familiar position of president, in quotation marks. Once in that position, though, instead of carrying out the planned selling of the disputed land, Santa Ana consolidated his resources and committed his country to full-scale war with the United States. This was a major eye-opener for those in the US who had expected Santa Ana to act in their best interests, while it also showed those in Mexico who hadn't wanted him back that he was both a devious and relentlessly power-hungry character. For both sides, though, and perhaps more importantly, it now meant that war could no longer be avoided. In contrast to the creeping tensions revolving around Texas, the opening salvos of the conflict actually began in California, where a small force of Americans were sent to capture towns and secure an American presence there. In the decade or so since Texas had rid itself of the Mexican yoke, the situation in California also began to unravel for Mexico. Just before war had definitively broken out between them, Californians had risen up and thrown away the representations of Mexican authority. They set up the short-lived California Republic on the 14th of June 1846, before word of the war had even reached them. William B. Ide, the Republic's first and only president, read the proclamation of the Californian Republic on the night of the 15th of June, saying that, To all persons, citizens of Sonoma, requesting them to remain at peace and to follow their rightful occupations without fear of molestation, the commander-in-chief of the troops assembled at the fortress of Sonoma gives his inviolable pledge to all persons in California not found under arms that they shall not be disturbed in their persons, their property or social relations, one to another by men under his command. He also solemnly declares his object to be first to defend himself and companions in arms who were invited to this country by a promise of lands on which to settle themselves and families who were also promised a republican government, who, when having arrived in California, 
were denied even the privilege of buying or renting lands of their friends, who instead of being allowed to participate in or being protected by a republican government, were oppressed by a military despotism, who were threatened by a proclamation from the chief office of the aforesaid despotism with extermination if they would not depart out of the country, leaving all of their property, their arms and beasts of burden, and thus deprived of the means of flight or defence. We were to be driven through deserts, inhabited by hostile Indians, to certain destruction, to overthrow a government which has seized upon the property of the missions for its individual aggrandizement, which has ruined and shamefully oppressed the labouring people of California by their enormous exactions on goods imported into this country. So is the determined purpose of the brave men who are associated under his, President's, command. He further declares that he believes that a government to be prosperous in its tendency must originate with its people who are friendly to its existence, that its citizens are its guardians, its officers are its servants, and its glory their reward. So the resolve of the new rebels in California was, of course, significantly strengthened by the arrival of American soldiers, informing them that America was now in a state of war with Mexico. It's worth keeping in mind here that the small numbers of soldiers were actually used by both sides, especially in the likes of California. This seems strange to us, of course, because it's hard to imagine anything other than massive armies fighting for the right to call California their own, simply because of the worth we would associate with California today in terms of commercialism, size, and their apparent wealth. But the sides that fought knew nothing of what the future held for California. The US wanted it as a stepping stone for further expansion to the West, while Mexico was just trying to hold on to whatever it could, recognising once again that local rebels had rejected Mexican authority. To put it in perspective, the Californian revolt itself involved just 30 American settlers rising up and holding the garrison of Sonoma at bay on June the 15th, until an equally small American force arrived at the end of that month to secure the American position. The US suffered some reversals, such as the loss of a relief column at the Battle of Dominguez Rancho on the 7th of October, 1846. Just weeks before that date, a larger Mexican force, considering of Californios, localised loyalist Mexican militia and soldiers, fought back and evicted the American force there. But when reinforcements arrived overland in a gruelling march through the Mojave Desert, the United States' position was re-established in California at the Battle of Rio San Gabriel on the 8th of January, 1847. The next day, US forces won another crucial battle at La Mesa, and on the 12th of January, the Mexican forces in California surrendered, signing the Treaty of Cahaga the next day, and securing California for the United States for good. John D. Eisenhower, in his book, So Far From God, The U.S. War with Mexico, 1846-48, writes about the American strategy in California. These operations were necessary and well-advised, as their success would ensure occupation of the territories that President Polk surreptitiously wished to obtain at the end of the war when both sides signed a peace treaty. But they were small expeditions compared with that of Zachary Taylor, who commanded the bulk of the American army. His would be the principal effort. Like I said, they were small expeditions that were sent into California, 
At their biggest, the decisive battles of Rio San Gabriel and La Mesa on the 8th and 9th of January respectively contained less than 1,000 men on the battlefield. I found it amazing, but maybe it's just me, that such small numbers could decide the fate of a state which is now so central and so important to the American identity. California was not the exception to the rule, though, and said it's a sign of things to come. While Taylor would contribute far more soldiers, the combined numbers of both sides never exceeded 25,000 men, and that was only during the final battle for Mexico City. If we compare this to, say, the Napoleonic era in Europe which had just passed, it's almost shocking that such numbers could still decide the fate of nations, but that's exactly what they did. In terms of shaping America, and I'll cover this subject a bit more later, nothing really comes close to this war which was fought not by hundreds of thousands, but thousands and more frequently just hundreds or tens of men in small battles which ended up deciding the fates of nations. It's significant because it'll become something of a dying trend, especially when the Civil War era rears its ugly head and massacres on scales never before possible occur, which in turn shatters the previous traditions of small armies in exchange for enormous lumbering swarms of men. Before California and Texas were completely secure, the American focus had switched to full-scale invasions of Mexico's outer states. After some naval skirmishes crippled the Mexican Merchant Navy off the lower part of Baja California coast, the way was open for large strategic plans in Mexico. In northeast Mexico, while the Californian campaign had been ongoing, General Zachary Taylor was besieging the old fortress town of Monterey. In early September, Taylor had finally acquired the craft necessary to cross the Rio Grande River and his forces reached the town on the 21st of September. Initially, Mexican morale was high and the American light artillery made little impact on the heavy fortifications there. The US strategy was clearly not working and the dug-in Mexican forces inflicted heavy casualties. The next day, on the 22nd of September, the US forces caught a break when they were able to secure Independence Hill, an overlook nearby Monterey, and acquire for their forces a tactical advantage in the process. The Mexicans didn't particularly like being watched from above, and morale began to slip as a stray cannon shot was directed into the town and over the walls. The next day, on the 23rd of September, the US forces advanced east and west into the town, while also following Texan instructions on how to effectively combat the Mexican soldiers and evict them from their positions in a house-to-house method of warfare. Such a way of waging war was relatively new, especially to those unfamiliar with the tactics of recent wars in Europe. Taylor made a controversial decision here, though, as he accepted the honorary surrender of the Mexican garrison in exchange for their handing over of the town. It was controversial because Taylor had allowed the majority of the Mexican forces to leave and fight another day. And he had also negotiated a form of a truce with General Ampudia, the commander of the town. President Polk was less than pleased when he learned of Taylor's moves, bluntly pointing to the fact that the US Army didn't have the power to negotiate truces only to kill the enemy. But you see, Taylor was playing for keeps. He knew that the casualties on his side had been higher than the Mexicans, and he also recognised he was in enemy territory with many goals still left to achieve. Overall, just under 10,000 soldiers were involved in the Battle of Monterey, with 4,000 on the Mexican and 6,000 on the American side. The Americans lost 400 men killed, while the Mexicans lost 250, but Taylor could point to the fact that the US 
now held Monterey and could use the town as a base of operations in enemy territory, if it so wished. The next year was a decisive one in the war. With California and Texas mostly secure by early 1847, the focus switched to an anticipated Mexican counterattack and, sure enough, Santa Ana personally led a force of 20,000 men to find and fight Taylor's American force. On the way there, though, many Mexican forces deserted and morale was critically low due to the unpopularity of Santa Ana's regime, a status which had already resulted in numerous revolts erupting throughout the Mexican states. So insecure was Santa Ana's rule that he was forced to go back to Mexico City just as the major confrontation with Taylor's comparatively small force of just 4,500 men was heating up. Just when it seemed like Taylor's force was about to be overwhelmed, the line held by a last-minute barrage by the U.S. rapid-fire cannons, which were the major advantage to the U.S. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. US Army, which was one of the major advantages that the US Army had over the Mexicans, as the Mexican equivalent could only fire two or three shots a minute compared to the five or six shot frequency of the American counterparts, made themselves felt. Thus, the Battle of Buena Vista on the 22nd of February 1847 resulted in a victory of sorts for the US Army. Not only that, but once Santa Ana had been forced to pull back to Mexico City and take an additional 5,000 men with him, the situation was now ripe for exploitation and Taylor was perfectly capable of doing so. Despite the misgivings of President Polk back in Washington, who began to distrust Taylor due to his previous signing of a truce, which actually broke military protocols, 
and his newfound fame, which made him a potential political rival, Taylor was allowed to continue with his campaign. Before I go into what happened next, though, I'd like to examine another angle of the war. It's one that I covered in the original version of this episode, but it stuck with me, so I'd kind of like to revisit it again. All history is biased, I know that, but I'd like to try and appear as even-handed as I can, especially with a war like this that has the potential to divide Mexican and American opinion even today. I found a pretty good source by Jesus Velasco Marquez, a college professor of the National Autonomous University of Mexico. His views may not necessarily be popular, but an opinion of the opposite side of the conflict means that his voice is worth hearing. He writes of the motives behind the war, saying that Polk immediately ordered the occupation of the territory south of the Rio Grande, as well as the New Mexico and Californian territories and the blocking of Mexican ports. The question was and continues to be, were these actions in defense of US territorial security, or the flagrant invasion of Mexican territory? From the viewpoint of Mexicans, the answer was clear. The United States was not seeking to protect its territorial security, nor did it have other supposed demands, but rather it was determined to take over territory legitimately belonging to Mexico. Marquez also writes of the opinion of the Mexican newspapers at the time, which were, unsurprisingly, dead set against the war that the United States was so effectively waging. El Tiempo, a daily newspaper, described the events as such. The American government acted like a bandit who came upon a traveller, while another daily Mexican newspaper, El Republicano, published the following opinion in June 47, when it wrote, No one has any doubts about the intentions the Washington cabinet has had for some time now with respect to Mexico. One fights in the name of usurpation, the other defends justice. The war has begun and the Mexican nation has a great deal at stake, since even if justice is on its side, that is unfortunately not enough to triumph and hold back the excesses of a powerful enemy. The war has now begun to our misfortune, and it is urgent that time not be wasted. It is always important to remember the other side, whatever the war, for reasons of fairness and accuracy. There was opposition to the war in the United States, based on the premise that Mexico was a comparatively weak nation that couldn't hope to resist the full force of US invasion successfully, and that diplomatic ventures, rather than military ones, should be used to prevent the loss of life and devastation in the free and sovereign state that Mexico was. From what we saw already before the war, Mexico was highly resistant to the idea of selling Texas, let alone Alto California and New Mexico to America. That the United States responded to the refusal with force is a fact, but it doesn't tell the whole story. You see, America wasn't recklessly waging an imperialistic war against Mexico, just like Mexico didn't provoke the United States to declare war and invade it. Pointing the finger of blame at either side misses the complex issues within the war that are too often forgotten. Why, for example, did Mexico want to hold Texas, however transparent its claims to it were, even while Texas had made clear its intentions to join America? And why did the United States place the idea of manifest destiny on so high a pedestal to the detriment of any tribes or empires who happened to already own land on either side? Neither side was entirely at fault, just as neither side was entirely without fault. Those hearing the story of this war now will make excuses and side with one or the other side depending on where their natural sympathies lie. 
That's just a fact. We've all done it and no one can be faulted for that. Just remember, dear history friends, as I have to, often, frequently, that there is two sides to every coin. In this case, the dollar might have been militarily stronger than the peso, but that doesn't mean it was strong in a moral or ethical sense. I am sorry to sound like a tired college professor, but as a former and likely future college student, the importance of remaining objective is ever-present, especially in wars like these that, well, it might surprise you to learn, are still somewhat contentious today, especially depending on the nationality of the historian investigating it. But back to the story... So General Taylor recognised that victory was his at the Battle of Buena Vista, and he didn't stop moving, advancing instead to Chihuahua City. The mayor of the city was on his walkies, though, and the city quickly capitulated, owing to the exhausted will of the people after the constant raids and counter-raids carried out by Native American tribes, which had been an ongoing feature of life in the north of Mexico since its independence had been achieved. The impact of those Native American tribes on the resolve of the Mexican population should not be underestimated, nor should the divided nature of the country along political grounds be forgotten, especially when it came to the ascendancy of Santa Ana and the expulsion of the previous dictatorship. Mexico never enjoyed the kind of unified strategy that America did, and it saw political instability and turmoil seep into nearly every facet of its authority. The US forces had a far easier job then, because they faced a population tired from native raids, frustrated by instability and divided by political loyalties. Chihuahua practically threw its gates open on the 1st of March 47, and this facilitated an easier campaign in the region, as well as the possibility of launching an invasion of Tabasco by sea. American forces landed there and soon captured the capital, San Juan Bautista, on the 13th of June 1847. If you can cast your mind back to episode 3, the Russo-Japanese War, and remember a Commodore Matthew Perry who negotiated trade deals with a newly opened Japan, then good. The same Perry appears here, and he's the man who navigates and successfully blockades not just this Mexican Gulf port, but a large number of others too. Soon he'd go out and do all that Japanese stuff, but first he was quite content to lend a hand in the defeat of Mexico. Though San Juan Bautista fell, the real victory was occurring at Veracruz, the state to the left of Tabasco, facing into the Gulf of Mexico. On the 9th of March, 47, American forces under General Winfield Scott landed and besieged the capital of Veracruz, overseeing its fall on the 21st of that month. Scott didn't stop, though. While Taylor was keeping Mexico busy in the north and Perry was choking them in the east, General Scott followed his orders to march inland, with the goals of capturing first Puebla and then Mexico City as his major objectives. Scott achieved the first of these on the 1st of May with the surrender of Puebla. The loss of Puebla was a shocking and debilitating one for Santa Ana, whose dictatorship now hung by a thread. While he was in Puebla, General Scott's forces paused for a breather, and they accepted reinforcements and supplies from ashore before preparing for the big one the march on Mexico City. One of Scott's aides, a Kirby Smith, wrote in his diary on the 5th of August, 1847, that They can do nothing, and their continued defeats should convince them of it. They have lost six great battles, we have captured 680 cannon, nearly 100,000 stands of arms, made 20,000 prisoners, had the greatest portion of their country, and are fast advancing on their capital, which must be ours. Yet they refuse to treat. 
Indeed, the American forces got nearer the capital, and Santa Anna secured his defensive line around it with a series of castles and forts. The most important of these, Chapultepec, became the scene of the most effective American victory and the most heroic of Mexican last stands. As the outnumbered garrison was worn down to the last few men, those that refused to surrender, the now immortalized Nino's heroes, or boy heroes, fought to the last man, with the final Mexican soldier wrapping himself in his country's flag and throwing himself from the ramparts so as to prevent the flag falling into American hands. They were called boy heroes due to their age. So unprepared was the castle for defence that it possessed few proper soldiers while it contained many military cadets. The cadets in question can't have been much older than 19 and the youngest was alleged to have been just 13. Regardless of their sacrifice though, the capture of the castle served only to encourage the Americans and now that the capital city was practically open to them, it was descended on and captured days later on the 10th of August 47. With such a devastating loss of his capital city, one could forgive Santa Anna for capitulating and abdicating, but he remained in power somehow and planned for a final campaign which would hopefully cut off the Americans from the sea, leaving them stranded in hostile territory. In late September he moved with a large force to surround the hampered American supply lines for good, but instead he lost the Battle of Helmantala on the 9th of October 1847. After this battle, Santa Anna was finished. He was deposed by the returning La Peña, who asked he be handed command, who handed command of the army over to the previously in power Herrera. Santa Anna was forced to comply, and the Mexican government was forced to concede defeat on a total level. With no options left open, Mexican representatives signed the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo on the 2nd of February 1848. This signalled the end of hostilities, but the worst was not yet over for Mexico. The Mexican secession was the result of the American victory, and in the biggest sudden acquisition of territory in its young history, America added the states of California, Nevada, Utah, New Mexico, most of Arizona and Colorado, parts of Texas, Oklahoma, Kansas, and Wyoming to its republic. The United States had cut a swathe through old borders and sensibilities, and watched its influence over territory and peoples grow to unimaginable proportions. In the most beneficial war in its history, perhaps in any country's history, the United States moved from a power on the eastern seaboard to a nation that now stretched all across the continent. It had begun the process which we would recognize today as the building of the modern American state. The United States had acquired a territory comparable in size to Western Europe, That should give you some idea of the magnitude of the war's success, but not everyone saw it that way. As per the terms of the peace treaty, America agreed to pay Mexico $10 million in exchange for the new territories, which sent a pretty clear message to Mexicans and anti-war campaigners alike. Had Mexico conceded to the US request in the first place, then they would have gotten three times the money they got in the end, and they wouldn't have to endure the humiliation of foreign occupation either. At the same time, though, it would be wrong to portray the U.S. as universally riding high over their massive acquisitions. There were a few notable critics of the foreign policy of America, in the upper levels even, of government at the time. Yet it was those that fought in the war and who reported on it afterwards, such as a young Ulysses Grant and Abraham Lincoln, that the war would gain such ringing condemnations, which would warrant its controversial status. 
Lincoln largely blamed the war on Polk's ambitious plans for American expansion, which he called a war unnecessarily and unconstitutionally begun by the President of the United States. It is Grant's analysis, though, that is perhaps the most poignant. Writing after the American Civil War had torn the nation asunder in the early 1860s, Grant described the Mexican-American War in his memoirs, which were eventually published in 1885, when he wrote, Generally the officers of the army were indifferent whether the annexation was consummated or not, but not so all of them. For myself, I was bitterly opposed to the measure, and to this day I regard the war which resulted as one of the most unjust ever waged by a stronger against a weaker nation. It was an instance of a republic following the bad example of European monarchies in not considering justice in their desire to acquire additional territory. His view of the war as one which facilitated the future civil war is an interesting one, but Grant obviously believed it held some water when he wrote, The Southern Rebellion was largely the outgrowth of the Mexican War. Nations, like individuals, are punished for their transgressions. We got our punishment in the most sanguinary and expensive war of modern times. Grant's opinion that because of the sudden acquisition of territory, America was hopelessly overburdened and unable to properly address the key issues that would divide it less than two decades later, deserves some consideration. Despite their acknowledgement that they themselves were Americans, exactly what being an American meant North and South was drastically different by now. In time, these differences would warrant conflict the likes of which Americans had never before seen or imagined, and it was only after tearing themselves apart for four years that both sides were able to appreciate this fact. Bringing it back down, though, after two years of war against Mexico, America took its most important steps towards unified statehood. While it was difficult to quantify at this time, even while the war's critics lambasted the merciless war for what it was, None could argue that the conflict had had anything other than a profound impact, both on the future of American development and on America's relationship with the wider world. And that, folks, is the end of the episode. My name is Zach, and you've been listening to the When Diplomacy Fails remastered look at the Mexican-American War. Thanks for listening, thanks for stopping by, and don't forget... Remember to check out WDFpodcast.com for ways to support, get in contact with, and inquire about this podcast. You guys are awesome. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you all soon. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.